Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, September 6th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, and my guest today is Jerry Brewster, a dietitian nutritionist who holds a master's degree in public health nutrition. Jerry began her clinical career nearly 30 years ago, specializing in pediatric and young adult developmental disabilities, including metabolic and gastrointestinal disorders, specialized tube feedings, dysphagia, autism, behavioral, attention, sensory, and oral motor integration disorders, and eating disorders. In her current practice, she develops comprehensive individualized lifestyle, nutritional, and supplement programs for each person's specific conditions. Jerry is also a Reiki practitioner and a registered member of the International Kinesiology Association. Welcome, Jerry. Hi, Terry. It's very good to be here with you today. Well, thank you, Jerry. I'm delighted that you could be with us here today sharing your great information with listeners. How did you become interested in human nutrition and foods? Uh, well, that my introduction to nutrition and uh, nutrition as a healing modality started very early in age. My mother had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis prior to um, to my birth, and she always believed in using nutrition, it made intuitive sense to her to value what she put in her body to keep her health optimal because MS, um, and it remains very much still a mystery today in terms of its actual etiology. So because this is something that was certainly unexpected and she felt she had little ability to have any control over it. And there was very little that was really being offered by the medical community back in the late 50s and throughout the 60s and, and even present. While there's been really good headway in, in that area, it's still very much about controlling the symptoms as opposed to knowing how to prevent and ultimately heal. Um, so she knew she could control her food intake. And um, the 60s was a time of real food uh, industrialization, and there were big shifts from the way she had grown up in terms of whole foods and a, and a garden to the processed foods that became more prevalent uh, after World War II and throughout the 50s. So she was looking to shift us back to something very wholesome and, uh, and clean eating. So that was really my, my first uh, orientation to it. It was just familiar to use food as a healing modality, and then, of course, the whole concept of food science and technology, which was evolving all throughout the 70s, drew me in further, and so I decided to uh, study human nutrition and foods and and began on that track and then ultimately went on um, for an internship in dietetics so that I could understand better special diets and medical nutritional therapy for disease conditions, so that's how I began, and my first job was with pediatrics in the special needs uh, arena. Uh, at that time, 
in the early 80s, very early 80s, um, there were many children with various metabolic diseases and levels of mental retardation that were still um, being institutionalized for long-term care. It was uh, There were not support systems at home um, to keep loved ones at home. We ran up against this even with my with my mom as she aged and um, her multiple sclerosis progressed. It's very difficult. You know, you're really on, on your own when you want to uh, keep someone with a chronic illness at home and care for them. So now there are um, avenues in place between um, waivers um, to allow for funding for that. But back when I first stepped into pediatric developmental disabilities, unfortunately there were quite a number of children in residential care, and many were very complicated um, respirators and tube feedings. And so I got very immersed in a, a very detailed clinical environment, but we, we did really good work, therapeutic work and, and oral motor programs and got a lot of kids off of tube feedings and onto oral feeds and it was very, very encouraging to work with such a great uh, number of interdisciplinary uh, team members of, of all occupational therapy, physical therapy backgrounds, speech pathology, psychologists. and. Uh, and then, of course, the tides began to really shift in the 90s as more children before even the nomenclature for autism uh, or PDD-NOS became, became known um, that we were getting referral packets for what was considered dual diagnosis, mental retardation with emotional uh, disorder because some of the stereotypical behaviors of autism, um, it, there were just so many children that were that were coming forward that needed services but were displaying many more um, behavioral characteristics than the autism type symptoms that were seen as part of um, fragile X or Rett syndrome or tuberous sclerosis um, kids that I had worked with before. And then ultimately the PDD-NOS uh, nomenclature started to be used, and, and then ultimately the floodgates were opened, and as you well know, we are in the midst of just epidemic numbers of children who are neurologically affected. So okay. anyway. <laughs> yeah. So um, you've alluded to something that the late, great Dr. Bernard Rimland discovered, and that was that um, cases of autism began to shift to becoming regressive autism, um, versus, you know, uh, something that parents always thought had been there in their child. Um, and, yeah, the floodgates really did uh, open in uh, about the 1990s. So what do you think autism is? And in your practice and through discussions with other practitioners, what seems to be the consensus about what autism is? And, and I'm referring more so, Jerry, to the epidemic numbers we're seeing, those kinds of cases. Um, well, my personal, I guess my personal feeling and, and best way to describe what autism is, because certainly I, I know that you've hosted quite a number of experts in that area on this show um, to discuss the, um, all the, the various theories. Um, but basically, I look at, it, look at it as an accumulation of, of brain pollution. <laughs> it's just the uh, culmination of a chemical body burden um, and um, 
just wreaking havoc with the immune systems, the endocrine systems, and the neurological systems of, of little little tiny bodies that are coming into this world with a, a high body burden and, and meeting a very adulterated food supply whose parents have grown up on an adulterated food supply and have had lots of exposure to a lot of neurotoxic chemicals that were introduced into our environment post-World War II. And, um, you know, and I, and I see my great concern is that I see that this may actually get, get worse before it gets better unless word can really get out um, about the value of supporting one's body. Um, when I, I see in my practice many children now... Uh, teens or tweens um, who are not on the autism spectrum but are presenting with anxiety disorders and um, learning disabilities who are medicated. They may also have some endocrine issues, um, the young gals, so they are um, on, the, on the birth control pill. And it's not at all unusual for me to have to see a 14-year-old who may be on four or five prescription medications between um, psychotropic and antidepressant meds as well as um, meds for attention and focus or, and or the birth control pill, uh, which can sometimes be upsetting to their, their system. I don't know whether their gut issues came first or come after, but many of them are on proton pump inhibitors, which run... Yay. Yeah, they run it exactly. So cause a lot of these kids have gastritis, and then they ultimately just get, whether they have an endoscopy or not to confirm it, they wind up on... Um, on Nexium or Prilosec, and which of course runs interference with their lot of nutrient absorption, and and we know we know the correlation between low essential fatty acids, vitamin D levels, um, as well as you know endocrine disruptors from plastics and whatnot. So you just you take the the poor nutrient intake combined with the body burden combined with the drug-nutrient interactions of some of the pharmaceuticals, which decrease um, nutrient absorption. And this is just something that a lot of people are not examining because, um, as I often say, you know, post-World War II, this was the land of plenty. So we associated nutrition with deficiency diseases in the past, and once there were no apparent uh, deficiency diseases, we began to really disregard nutrition and, and nutritional quality of our foods, but yet as our bodies are um, stressed with this physiological burden of different chemicals coming in, we actually have a greater need for nutrients. Uh, and our government's always telling us, you know, all five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables a day for the antioxidant potential that's realized and how important that is in disease prevention. But most people don't get that, and certainly the children are not are not getting it because families are really uh, are strapped for time. And sometimes the more specialists that a child needs to see, whether they be neurotypical uh, or not, they're still going for a lot of various therapies and support as well as sports, et cetera, and food becomes the, the, the last concern of a family. And so um, this, is, uh, this is where I think... Autism is, is coming from. I just think our 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 bodies are are 
very heavily taxed and not the best prepared to then, uh, you know, so I look at these, these 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds and I, and I think, wow, you know, maybe not until they're 40 when their careers are all established and will they go to a reproductive endocrinologist to get pregnant without really looking at the decades of um, perhaps poor nutrient uh, absorption and therefore reserves to really be able to build a better baby. And um, Good point. Yeah, really good point. So if they're one of the kids who are actually able to reproduce in the future, uh, that uh, future fetus isn't going to have the best start. So I think that uh, you've alluded to some good points here. I'll kind of wrap up this segment. Um, so I seem to remember that, that uh, you know, white bread is, is at the bottom of the food pyramid being what you're supposed to get the most servings of, and that can't be supporting the body the best, I don't think. Um, you've alluded to the point that uh, our, the head is not in a vacuum and that the whole body is connected and that uh, autism is a whole body disorder. So I think exactly. this is a great start, and we will be back from break shortly. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back with Jerry Brewster. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with dietitian and nutritionist Jerry Brewster. We're having a really interesting conversation about some uh, historical perspectives on diet and and autism and such and 
I know, Jerry, you know, you were tying nutrition into behavioral manifestations of the current, um, you know, population of teenagers who you see in your practice, and I know that uh, nutrition has been used successfully to mitigate symptoms of schizophrenia, for example, and you also were talking about your mom having multiple sclerosis, and I couldn't help but think, um, aren't some cases of, uh, don't MS and autism share the commonality of being demyelinating diseases? They do, they do, and they certainly, um, just even from an autoimmune standpoint, they share um, perhaps commonality there as well. Um, they are demyelinating. Something does turn that on, the, the body's um, attacking itself, and certainly the whole field of epigenetics or an environmental factor that ignites a a gene or genetic predisposition. We certainly know our genes are not hardwired and that how they manifest is subject to our environmental exposures and and traumas, even physical or emotional, that can um, ignite a, a cascade of various stress hormones perhaps can be responsible. I mean, this is certainly something that we do realize the complexity and that it's very often a a multivariable um, assault or trigger, uh, not always just one factor. Um, but yes, they are demyelinating and they share probably this autoimmune umbrella. And within autism, as well as within multiple sclerosis, there are different subtypes. And these are areas of epidemiology that are so well studied, but yet nothing very specifically definitive yet. Um, but you have relapsing, remitting, you have progressive um, terminology and types within multiple sclerosis. You have that within autism as well. And just for um, for our listeners who don't know what um, demyelination is, um, you've got this fatty sheath around your, your the cells in your brain, your neurons, and it's like insulation, and in a demyelinating disease, that gets stripped away, and then neural conductivity doesn't work so well. Right. Um, so I got that right. Did did nutrition actually help your mom, Jerry, with her MS? I think that it helped her with her MS in terms of reducing the progression because she was really on to um, using essential fatty acids early on, um, she had the good fortune of being a patient of Carlton Fredericks, a, um, a real visionary of his time in terms of nutritional biochemistry. And um, so she was really relying on nutritional supplementation and a very clean diet. Um, and I, it definitely, I can tell you, certainly prevented any what would have been considered age-related or chronic disease. Now, of course, unfortunately, our pediatric population is, is diagnosed with chronic disease or diseases that were once considered, uh, you know, old people's diseases. So we certainly have our share of chronicity going on. But in my, my mother, who was born in the 1920s, um, you know, most of her contemporaries were all suffering from 
age-related diseases, hypertension or, or vascular disease or diabetes and, and arthritis, and she never did. Even those friends of hers who had multiple sclerosis who continued to follow a very standard American diet and um, were not concerned with additional supplement support or nutrient support um, certainly deteriorated. She saw many of her friends um, through the MS Society that she knew um, really get worse much faster and succumb to their disease, but it was often complicated because of other, you know, what I consider age-related diseases at the time that crept in, whereas her health remained really strong. She was really well throughout her life. The MS did, in fact, progress, and then ultimately she did pass from complications of multiple sclerosis, um, just the... um, the innervation of the nerves to the muscles, the atrophy, and everything affecting her internal organs. But she was nearly 80. She was nearly well, 80 years old. That's how long, you know. <laughs> so, you know, and she was diagnosed in in, uh, in her late 20s. So, um, you know, she had quite a, uh, a long, healthy life. Uh, over the course of my, my life growing up, I, of course, I saw her go from, you know, ambulating to a cane to a walker and ultimately to a wheelchair, but she was able to live her life and, you know, see her children grow and her grandchildren grow and, and participate in her family. Also, so. Jerry, I'm going to take that as a yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, which is certainly what motivated me always to believe that food is medicine and believe in the healing capacity of the body and that a disease, you know, may be diagnosed, but that doesn't, you know, that's not, that doesn't, that's just a name. That's naming something, um, and that's okay, that's important, but then you have to take, you know, with any of these quote-unquote chronic diseases, it's not just a matter of medications to treat the symptoms, but it really is to, to you know, take on your own power and, and give your body what it needs to really heal itself to the best of its capacity and prevent other diseases from coming forward as they often do in life. And that is so important and so vital and, and something that I really, the families that I work with are children on the spectrum if, and, you know, really being supportive of the parents and understanding the families as a whole. So saying, okay, sure, if we need to go with medications at this time, but then let's look at some of the possible side effects of those medications, use nutrition to mitigate some of that so that we're not winding up with another set of issues later on. Sometimes, of course, we have to be right in the moment, but we're talking about children and really planning their health and well-being for a lifetime. So we have autism now, and then as much as we want to work to prevent that autism from progressing, let's make sure we put enough factors into place to make sure we're not adding any other disease diagnosis to the table at any point in the future if it's within our power. So that's great. Really great point. All right, so we've established autism as a whole body condition, and we wanted to talk today about the gut-brain connection. Um, what are some examples of published literature, first of all, establishing the presence of gastrointestinal inflammation in many children diagnosed with autism? Oh, this the link between gastrointestinal dysfunction and, and um, 
autism uh, spectrum disorders is, is definitely not a new concept, going back really to the beginning with uh, Leo Kanner, the psychiatrist and physician whose studies helped form the foundation for modern understandings and approaches to autism. He described in his case studies um, essentially GI disturbances in many of those subjects in the um, first paper uh, that he profiled in um, this condition in 1943. And um, whether it was vomiting or um, diarrhea, abdominal distension, eating problems, and that was in the 40s. And then in the early 70s, uh, Dr. Goodwin and, and many other authors also found um, more than 50% of the children that they were looking at with autism had um, loose bowels, had intermittent diarrhea, bulky odorous stools, um, and they even um, diagnosed at that time celiac disease in one of the subjects that they were studying. So the, and then it's, it's only picked up more since then. I mean, in the last decade, there's been so much published by a number of um, physicians and scientists and gastroenterologists um, looking at endoscopic examinations of children with autism and finding a lot, finding a lot with reflux esophagitis and or chronic duodenal inflammation um, and chronic gastritis. So there's um, been so much published. Um, and I have to say, as an aside, unfortunately, I think that gastrointestinal disorders in general and the pediatric population has certainly increased. There are many children diagnosed with, with reflux, and there are many uh, reflux and constipation. Um, there are many children on medications for those symptoms early on, and we can talk a little bit more about that later, but a, a lot of it points to just disrupted gut flora right out of the box, <laughs> which may really go back to mom's floras being disrupted. And, and then, of course, looking at the the gut and the gut's connection to the brain um, and how some of that flora can even influence our brain chemistry, um, there, is, there is much in the literature um, pointing to all of that. And, and not just in autism, but we know that as goes the gut, so goes the body. Once you impair that gut wall, you know, most of your immune system is in the gut, and once you um, in, impair that gut wall and have stuff going through to your bloodstream, a whole cascade of events can occur. Um, it's, it's not just autism either, but, you know, Jerry, you're alluding to a bigger picture with chronic disease uh, among children, and I think it was in American Pediatrics recently, that, you know, 43 to 54% of American children have um, one of the, 20 chronic diseases that they assessed in this study. It's really alarming. So the question becomes, why are so many children sick? Uh, a, a colleague of mine, Mark Blackwell, is always asking that. Why are so many children sick? And we'll talk more about this when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Jerry Brewster. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with dietitian and nutritionist Jerry Brewster, who has a practice in New York. And can you give us your website address, Jerry? Hi, Terry. Sure. Thank you. It's www.jerrybrewster, and it's all one word, G-E-R-I-B-R-E-W-S-T-E-R.com. And I am in um, New York City and Westchester County, just about a half an hour north of Midtown Manhattan on the train. Okay, well, I encourage listeners to visit Jerry's website. I'm certainly finding the information we're talking about today to be very fascinating. So, Jerry, let's pick up with um, uh, GI inflammation, GI pathology, and how does that exacerbate autism symptoms, and how can dietary intervention lessen that gut inflammation in some of the kids? Okay, well, uh, that's... um very com- <laughs> very complex question, but I will um, say uh, just to begin with that the gut is responsible, as you said, for so much of our immune system and creating um, uh, our innate immunity um, and as well as um, aspects of our adaptive immunity that which is acquired um, from 
exposures and our and our gut is supposed to be our barrier to our bloodstream. So we're supposed to take in these foods and break them down to their smallest components and absorb them into our bloodstream and utilize them cellularly, uh, have them go where they need to go and utilize them cellularly. But sometimes the gut can become permeable. And this permeability can occur for a whole host of reasons. There can be reactivity um, to certain proteins and large molecules like gluten, and that discussion may have to be uh, something, a show unto itself because it's very complex. Um, but some, things, uh, some of this permeability can be increased because of reactivity to those proteins, which then turn on, activate inflammatory compounds that actually um, uh, reduce that, the, the junction, the, the, the tightness between the cells of the intestine. So it allows more of a free flow of, of, of different compounds from the gut into the bloodstream. But also our, our gut flora also helps to create that barrier because if you have a good gut flora, it helps to support what are known as the brush border enzymes, the ones that are responsible for the fine-tooth fine kind of breaking down of, of many molecules, especially carbohydrates. Um, but when you don't have a good flora and you have some destruction of this, these brush border enzymes, you wind up with a lot of gas and bloat and distension and, and compounds that also degrade the um, in, intestine and cause this permeability to occur. And then once that happens, proteins can enter the bloodstream, the body can develop an, um, a reaction to them, and, and then and the body can get sick. You know, inflammatory compounds, um, various types of inflammatory compounds will just be released, and, and while all of these compounds are then circulating in the bloodstream, it can make the body feel sick or inflamed, and that inflammation, some of these inflammatory compounds can then, in fact, cross the blood-brain barrier and affect mood and behavior, learning, concentration, So, um, and some of it affects musculoskeletal systems and other organs as well, um, puts additional strain on the liver. Uh, to have to detoxify and, and metabolize some of these compounds. So um, the integrity of the gut really is integral to the integrity of the rest of the body. So when a little child is born with a very dysregulated gut and we're using medications, again, to just control those symptoms without working toward healing that gut and providing the nutrients that it needs and the form that it needs to really allow healing, um, you know, this, this is what I believe sets up a lot of this chronic disease of pediatrics that you're discussing now that's been noted in the journals. Similarly, for all of the allergies in just the last decade that are being acknowledged. And allergy, sensitivity, intolerance, I mean, the terminology gets all, uh, all a bit mixed up. Uh, true allergy or IgE, cell-mediated reaction to a particular, a specific protein um, that causes, say, hives or throat constriction, um, a, a real acute allergic reaction, that is IgE reactivity. But there are many other measures for sensitivity or intolerance um, that can show up either in the blood or even through skin testing. Um, 
a lot of times the histamine reactions that are checked on skin are considered, of course, you know, to then be diagnostic as true allergy as well. Um, but at the end of the day, the best allergists and immunologists that you'll speak to will say, again, these are just all um, parameters to measure, but you have to combine that with clinical symptoms and, at the, and, and then obviously avoid what is not well tolerated because what might be even an IgE uh, level two in one person from a reactive standpoint, you know, someone else could have it as a level five and be barely reactive to the substance, say, oh, that they eat that all the time. We didn't even know they were allergic. Now the doctor says to stop eating it because, you know, meanwhile they seem to have had the anaphylactic reaction to the sesame seed. That only showed up as a two. So, again, you know, the, the body has great compensatory mechanisms. It's always looking to maintain homeostasis, so sometimes we really have to go by clinical symptoms in combination with these laboratory results. There is nothing that I have ever found to really be the be-all and end-all. It's not a black and white issue. Jerry, let me just ask a practical question, digress here a minute. I'll use myself as an example. I never had a big problem with allergies, you know, the allergies you think of with a chew, a chew, you know, sneezing. Right. Um, seasonal allergies or whatever, um, and I didn't have a big problem with ingestibles either. But um, my, I believe that something went awry after having taken a couple courses of a really strong antibiotic years ago, and after that, um, I started with the allergies to environmental factors with lots of sneezing, and I started being allergic to more ingestibles. So how did it get from my gut to my nose? Well, I think probably what happened with those strong courses of antibiotics, it it probably at the time certainly wiped out your flora, which was providing the best um, level of immunity uh, for you. And even though the, the antibiotics may have ceased, your your body has really not never really recovered from that shift in your gastrointestinal flora. Now, sometimes that can be um, addressed by going through a gastrointestinal biofilm protocol to, to really try to uh, repopulate your, your gut with, with all the good organisms that are necessary for good immunity. Um, but getting back to where you are right now, your body was taxed, your immune system did shift, and it began to react. Now, there's cross-reactivity between those achoo-achoo environmental allergens and many foods. There were proteins in many foods, even fruits and vegetables, and in very small amounts. It's really the enzyme capacity of those, because uh, we don't think of fruits and vegetables being big um, protein sources, but just the enzymes that are present in those plant foods um, are, in fact, themselves proteins which can be reactive and cross-react with different environmental um, triggers. Here in the Northeast now, we're going through ragweed season, and ragweed as an airborne allergen cross-reacts with foods in the melon and squash and gourd family, essentially, as well as certain leafy greens like endive and escarole. So uh, someone may eat cantaloupes in May and do just fine, but if they have a allergy to ragweed and they have half a cantaloupe uh, on a day where the ragweed 
pollen is very high, all of a sudden their throat may get a little scratchy or tight and some post-nasal drip and then really start a big sneezing frenzy and then simply dismiss it and saying, oh, it's ragweed season, but they really just exacerbated their reaction by consuming a cross-reactive protein. So as I said, there are many different levels um, to allergy. Once the body gets sensitized, it's going to react. So even though many years ago you had this initial um, challenge to your system, I'm sure just different life stressors and strains have has probably also taken its toll on your overall immunity. So once you began to react to something, you are sensitized now, and you may be cross-reacting with some uh, foods as well, which are just continuing to potentiate the the issue for you. Wow, I never thought of that. I never knew that. that thank you so much. Well, um, I kind of just thought that I, you know, I it damaged my gut and, you know, the antibiotics uh, uh, caused growth of opportunistic pathogens and that damaged the gut wall and then it let everything go through into the bloodstream from then on. I thought that was what might be going on. Well, it, it is, it is, that that was certainly step number one, and um, but now just repopulating yourself with good flora, as you know, many people will do that. They'll be like, I take acidophilus or I take probiotics, and I'm still just not getting a handle on my gut or my immune system. Again, a lot of the uh, you know bacteria they they want to protect themselves, so they do protect themselves with within a biofilm. It's in uh, sometimes if the gut is very damaged and you've got a a little bit more of a mucosal layer there. You're even taking your probiotics. There's just nowhere for them to really take root and colonize to really rebuild. So wow. um, it doesn't hurt to take them, um, but you're swimming upstream a little bit, and it takes a little bit more of a, of a you know several prong approach than to just be able to throw some probiotics in after antibiotics and think that you can always recover the damage. Wow. That is a really, really important point. So um, wrapping up this segment, um, why would it be really important, for going back to the gut inflammation and uh, GI condition and autism and, and behavior and such, uh, why is it really important for the public and the medical community to acknowledge the gut-brain connection, especially as it relates to kids with the diagnostic label of autism? You've alluded to this. Well, I think that it's important because, again, it is, it all, certainly is all connected. And I do feel, and I have the privilege of working with quite a number of physicians, whether they be under uh, the umbrella of conventional medicine, and certainly the, the biomedical docs uh, can appreciate the, the total body approach. But I think even the conventionalists realize their limitations, and when they see something that's working, have an appreciation for that and are supportive of it. So they're always, um, their first concern is certainly to do no harm. So they'll always preface it, well, as long as this diet isn't going to remove other nutrients um, or can, you know, allow for any other um, restrictions um, or restriction of nutrients, I know we're coming up to a break. I do want to touch on when we come back certainly how, specific diets can help in this healing process and reduce inflammation. Okay, so basically, if we correctly identify the problem and acknowledge the gut-brain connection, especially in autism, then we can do something about it. 
that's great. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jerry Brewster about diets, and we'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com the autism hope alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism the goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today diet modification biomedical intervention and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery through these efforts we believe hope will replace hopelessness Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with Jerry Brewster, and we have just been having the most fascinating discussion. And uh, Jerry's going to come back with us in October and we'll cover whatever we didn't cover today, the really vital topics of probiotics and biofilm. And now we're going to talk about diet. And, Jerry, when parents come to your practice, what do they talk about in their children's history, and how do you clinically begin to address the histories of their children that they relate? Well, I usually actually begin with preconception health of of the parents and mom especially, Um, but very often... What I hear in the child of their um, the life of their child from early on, there's often been some type of gut disruption. So they were a colicky baby. Formulas may have been changed. Um, moms that were breastfeeding were um, often giving up, say, gassy foods. Interestingly enough, um, many uh, are never advised to do an elimination diet during, you know, while they're nursing. Um, So they may still be consuming a lot of foods with high allergy potential and those, because they're high-protein foods, so you want to make sure you're getting your, you know, keeping up your nutrients and your protein, but having a lot of dairy, you know, the the five most common allergens are, are dairy, wheat, soy, eggs and corn. So, and these foods make up a lot of our 
you know, diet. Um, so they might give up, like, broccoli and, and beans because of the gassiness aspect, but they're not really, no one's asking them to examine the proteins that, are, that they're taking in. And some of these proteins, which then formulate the mother's milk, um, can be difficult for, for these little guys to be able to digest and assimilate. So we, we tend to have um, a colicky baby with history of reflux and either diarrhea or constipation. So a lot of early bowel issues then leading into early infection. Um, and a lot of kids, understandably, you want to put the fire out if they're really arching and they're really refluxing and uncomfortable, but they're put on, um, you know, Zantac or some type of acid blocker early on. And, of course, you do need acid to kill germs, so sometimes acid blocking can lead someone to, you know, more frequent upper respiratory type of infection. So then you, you start with the early antibiotics and you get into this vicious cycle of gut issues and uh, dependence on antibiotics and um, and then sometimes by four o'clock four I'm sorry, excuse me four four years of age um, these kids are really um, they're on IEPs in preschool they're being they're diagnosed even if they're not on the spectrum they're winding up with multiple health and mental health issues. Um, I have children as young as eight years of age who are on anti-anxiety meds because of um, anxious behavior and gut issues. Again, seeing the gastroenterologist but and then also seeing the psychiatrist and psychologist, um, but nobody really connecting the two. <laughs> that some of the, this child's behavioral issues are really related to all the gut issues that began early on and then the, uh, the additional assault on the gut from um, the antibiotics. So it's not that these meds aren't necessary at times. It's just that we get into sort of this pharmacological soup in a very young child, um, and no one is really then examining what that child's is eating. So um, I start always just by dietary cleanup because some parents would find it too overwhelming to begin on a special diet. So I just kind of look at what they're currently eating, look to go to cleaner sources, maybe reduce some of the dependency on the things that are constantly going in. It's as simple as just looking at the two sides of an equation. If this is what's always going in and these are the symptoms that we're always getting out, then we have to change up what's going in. And uh, it, it's, it can be very empowering um, to parents as well to really begin to start to see that connection because, again, the food was always an afterthought. And then once we move it right up to the front as like our first line of therapy, um, just shifts in behavior it, uh, can be very dramatic. And as I explain how certain enzyme pathways for detoxification um, are, are if they're being utilized to get kind of chemicals from foods out of the body, then they're not freed up to get, you know, break down products of certain neurotransmitters out of, of the body, you know, our the detox pathways can get jammed up. There's only so, so much junk you can clear out at one time. 
And, you know, so very simply speaking, you know, there's a backlog of, of, of junk circulating through the bloodstream, aggravating the gut, the brain, the whole body, and that child doesn't feel good. So they are going to melt down, and they are going to have sleeping issues, and they are going to have behavioral issues. But we can really, we can really change, change that up. Wow. Jerry, <laughs> I think you just stated that so eloquently, summing it up and giving us a great take-home message. We're going to stop right here. Please remind us of your website address. It is www.jerrybrewster.com. That's G-E-R-I-B-R-E-W-S-T-E-R. Okay, great. Well, Jerry, thank you for giving our listeners all of this vital information today on this essential foundational topic in autism, and we're going to really look forward to seeing you back here with us in October. Jerry, will be back on, among other things, the vital topics of probiotics and biofilm, which are so, so, so important to the health of kids with autism and important to be done correctly. Uh, Jerry has a really excellent article on subjects that we discussed today in the current issue of Autism Science Digest magazine. Please see the Autism One website to get your copy, which will also be on select bookstore shelves this month. My guests next week are Dr. Christy Dizonia and William Mara of the Training, Education, and Research Institute, a model program providing adult services in California. And Autism One is going to Barbados. The Autism One Spectrum Possibilities Barbados Conference 2011 will be held November 3rd through 5th. Please see www.spectrumpossibilities.org for more details. And also in November... The National Autism Association's National Autism Conference in beautiful, sunny, relaxing Tampa, St. Pete, Florida will be happening. I'll be there, so please visit www.nationalautismconference.org. Thank you to this radio program's sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.